Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger is joined by former Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, Harry Bingen, and former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, Steve Kittay. Mr. Kittay currently works as the Senior Director of Azure Space at Microsoft. Ms. Bingen serves as the Chief Strategy Officer at Hawkeye 360. Roger, Mr. K, and Ms. Bingen discuss what the U.S. Space Force is, what it will do, and how it came to be. If you enjoy the conversation, Remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Carrie Bingen, Stephen Gattay, welcome to Reaganism. Thank you. It's great to be here with you, Roger and Carrie. It's an old reunion. It is. It is a House Armed Services Committee professional staff reunion. We'll get into that a little bit. But first, what's on every listener and viewer's mind right now is were either of you brought in as advisors for Netflix's show, Space Force? Okay, Steve? <laughs> um, no, they did not. Uh, uh, I don't believe that they reached out to the Pentagon. What about you, they Carrie? Were... They did not give me a call. I was oh, disappointed. So, so this is disappointing. I mean, two of the best and brightest and most experienced uh, people in the space world were in consultative uh, for Netflix's show Space Force. Steve, did you watch the show? Absolutely. Um, what about you, Carrie? I, I did as well. They did all right, Carrie, was, was it at all, did it all line up with your experience dealing with Space Force in any way? There was some truthiness there, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> truthiness? Steve, did, was there any truthiness there? <laughs> <laughs> there was some elements underneath that was certainly entertaining to see when they got called up to Congress <laughs> and having to testify. I mean, could either of you, Carrie, uh, is there an example of truthiness that you could you could share with us? So when we watch a uh, rewatch, I, I'll say I did identify with the poor congressional staffer uh, in the <laughs> hearings. Steve, anything to add to that? Um, I was disappointed that they didn't have a deputy assistant secretary of defense for space policy. I think that would have been a lot more humorous. Yeah, I, I, there we go. As a former deputy assistant secretary of defense and first for space policy, uh, it's clearly a gap in, in yeah. Netflix. We should, we should contact the producers and, <laughs> and, and writers and protest. Uh, let's move from Space Force Netflix to Space Force and the House Armed Services Committee. Steve, when did you decide or realize while you're at the Hask uh, that this was something that needed to happen, was going to happen? When you and I met each other and, and you started on the House Armed Services Committee staff, was this something you arrived with the intent on working on or did it kind of surface later? Um, it surfaced later. You know, um, the, the creation of the Space Force is quite a story. Uh, frankly, if I went through all of it, this would quickly become an audiobook and not a podcast. So but, but um, I'm talking about that moment where you're like, wow, this is happening. What happened while you're on the armed service committee staff, right? Absolutely. And, and did it surprise you 
you know, when members started talking about it or you're, or it kind of the, the type of thing that during your time working on these issues, you felt, hey, this, this, this might be necessary and you got members interested. So was it from staff up to members or members down to staff? You know, um, it's, it's actually really interesting how that came about. Um, one of the impetus of really looking deeply at this was a GAO report and government probably, accountability office or accounting office. They, they issued a report, which normally only a select few read yeah. <laughs> even smaller few kind of let read the whole thing. There, there's some report which said, Hey, we should look at a space force, Steve. There was a, a report that looked at all the previous studies over the past couple decades of space organization and management. And it started with the Rumsfeld Commission in 2000 and went through different commissions. And it didn't assess anything new, but what it did is it brought it to light to the members that we knew we had challenges there and that forced them to look at it. And what was really interesting in the way they looked at this problem, and it was, who really jumped in deeply and led this was uh, Mike Rogers and Jim Cooper, members of Congress. It was then chairman and ranking member. And, um, and they approached it like Einstein uh, said he, how he approached problems. If, and the quote- For those not Einstein, familiar with Einstein's approach to problem solving, how would you summarize it? His approach to problem solving is if the world is gonna end in one hour, take 50 minutes on understanding the problem and 10 minutes on the solution. And that was exactly what we did. We looked at the problems and then the solution became readily apparent. Carrie, let's just go to you. Before I, I go to Steve for like the drama and perhaps trauma of getting the Space Force out of the US Congress um, during the Trump administration, you know, you and I got to know each other. You were the space guru. Um, are you at all kind of tell me how you got into space and when it began for you? And then I want to get a sense of um, whether or not the Space Force in any way distracts from the priorities that you focused on for, for years, decades before there was a Space Force. But when did you become a space, uh, a space person? I was a space person before the Space Force was even in existence. So I want to say back when I was seven years old, I was, I got my first taste of space with the shuttle and the astronaut program, and I was hooked. Um, but you and I first crossed paths in about the 2006 timeframe on House Armed Services Committee, and I was doing the space portfolio then. And um, I was there when the Chinese launched uh, their direct descent ASAT test. That was a anti-satellite missile, right? anti-satellite missile that took out one of their weather satellites. And that was a real wake-up call, uh, bipartisan, bicameral within Congress, and I think also within the Department of Defense and the intelligence community on, um, you know, China is incredibly serious about this capability, about holding our satellites uh, at risk, being able to potentially destroy them. They had seen over the past 20 or so years how critical space had become to our ability to 
project forces to employ, uh, employ our weapon systems around the world, and they went to school on us. So they looked at how we use satellite communications and GPS and our intelligence systems. And so that was a real wake-up call of our satellites are no longer these pristine, untouchable things, but they can be threatened and destroyed. So we're going to get to this distinction between space as a kind of do domain where you can actually just have a space war versus space as a as a key kind of support element for what our military does on the ground. But Carrie, let's just go back. Cause I remember, you know, when, when China launched the anti-satellite uh, missile and everybody's eyes kind of grew wide, what was the most important thing you were involved with to respond to that, that has paid dividends? Here we are, you know, a, a decade and a half or so later. So the thing that I, one of the areas that I was most proud of working with uh, then chairman of the Strategic Forces Subcommittee, Terry Everett, and then oh, wow. it was uh, ranking Alabama. member, uh, yeah, Sylvester Reyes from Texas. I mean, they were just an amazing duo. And then Ellen Tauscher after him, um, after Sylvester Reyes, uh, we worked on a protection strategy. We required in law that the, that the, uh, the national security apparatus develop a coherent protection strategy for how we were going to protect our assets. And that signal to the department showed how important this was to Congress. And it really forced both the defense community as well as the intelligence community to come together uh, with a coherent way ahead, um, plans, resources, the, the, the policy framework, the strategy for how we protect space. And so I like to say that that was a great, um, a great step that then led us down the road to things like Space Force and Space Command setting up you know, a decade later. I, I wanna go in a moment back to Steve for Space Force creation, but Carrie, uh, freak out everybody listening uh, and watching, all right? If the Chinese or anybody else, cause you know, Korea, North Koreans are experimenting with this stuff too and have capability, were to take out our satellites uh, because they have this capability, what would it mean to our day-to-day -day life? Like, like what would happen if we lost the, you know, suite of satellites uh, that I'm not even talking about military platforms. I'm just talking about a type of thing that, you know, we all have kids here, you know, that that would interrupt our daily life and make uh, us as parents miserable because our children can have the things and do the things that uh, allow, allow, <laughs> make them happy. Yeah, you, yeah, Roger, you're you're spot on, and it's interesting. And in some of the the war games that have been played in the past is it's it's hard for I think us to grasp how widespread our dependencies on space, but then also how catastrophic it would be as if we lost those capabilities. A lot of times the war games just end because we can't get our head around that. But you think about that with GPS and satellite communications, everything from. Uh, our ability to withdraw cash, the big thing from an ATM machine because they rely on the timing to other credit card transactions to our financial markets relying on that timing signal. Uh, um, the agricultural world, maritime shipping that relies on precise positioning. Um, so GPS uh, is like huge, it's more, than, it's more than ways and trying to figure out the, the most efficient way to drive to whatever location we're going to. It's, it hits all aspects of our economy and kind of the precision. Oh, it's it, it, absolutely, it's that precision. So it shows up in banking and finance, in communicate telecommunications, in areas like agriculture, um, uh, transportation. Um, you know, Carrie, so all last, one, last one for you on this. Give us a sense of the resilience of the GPS that is driving all those uh, 
sectors of our economy and our and our life. Is it a satellite? Is it a suite of satellites? Is it quickly, you know, could you restore it if, if a few are taken out? Or, you know, obviously without you going into the to the um, classified realm, but you know, how how strong is this kind of the backbone that drives so much of what we rely on? Well, the hard part here is we've tended to treat space as this pristine environment that can't be touched. And so we put these systems up, we leave them alone for years and let them operate. And so now when we see what China is doing, what Russia is doing, whether it's in low earth orbit where we have imagery satellites, weather satellites, you know, we, we rely on them for weather, whether it's those GPS satellites in medium earth orbit or our communication satellites further out in geostationary orbit, um, um, you know, they all can be reached today by foreign threat capabilities. And that's where we've really seen a shift over the last 10 years or so is all of those right. domains and space can be hit. So with that, enter Space Force and Steve Cate in the House Armed Services Committee putting on his staffer cape and delivering to Mike Rogers and Jim Cooper uh, what they needed to get the Space Force approved and authorized through the US Congress. Steve, uh, what was the hardest part? What was the, 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 the most traumatic moment when you were working this issue? Was it the debate between members who normally get along fighting over whether we should have or should not have? Was it big Air Force saying there's no way we're gonna give up our space budget to create a new uh, military service? Uh, did you have did you have kind of Air Force lovers coming after you and threatening you because you're now, you know, walking away from uh, you know, taking space away from the Air Force? What was the scariest, traumatic, most traumatic part? It was definitely tough getting alignment on creating a space force. Uh, we have come a long way. And, you know, I don't, um, you know, I don't blame those who initially were reluctant to it. If you don't really um, get involved in space issues much and don't know much about the challenges that Carrie just talked about with the threats we're facing or how important it is. And somebody says, we're gonna create a new branch of our armed forces and we haven't done this in 70 years. Most people's initial reaction is going to be, why are we going to do that? So the most challenging aspect was getting that alignment on why we needed to create a new branch of our armed forces, something we hadn't done since 1947 when the Air Force came out of the Army. Um, Steve, there was a very diplomatic response without referring to any particular trauma, whether it was a, you know, an Air Force secretary opposed it, a general officer, or another member of Congress. Uh, so you, clearly everybody can understand why you've done so well in the, in the difficult jobs you've held. The public, was really behind this. We did surveys at the uh, Reagan Institute with a Reagan National Defense Survey. And clearly when President Trump got behind this, that, that impacted uh, a lot of folks. Uh, but there was overwhelming support for a space force. In your experience, did the views of the American people here uh, help or impact at all uh, the decision to move ahead with this, Steve? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it was, it went through a period of evolution. You know, we started talking about the congressional period, which goes, you know, 2015, 2016, 2017, where the first legislation came out for creating what was called then a space core, because it was a, 
modeled after what we were looking at, the Marine Corps model, where the Department of the Navy has services within it. We set up a structure with the Department of the Air Force having two services within it. Um, that was before its time. There was an alignment. Uh, there was not alignment. It, that legislation made it through the House. It did not make it through the Senate at that time. But then, as you said, in 2018, President Trump breathed new life into it. And he had a vision saying that this is extremely important for our nation. And that's fundamentally what the Space Force is all about. It's all right, a little, a little wonky question. Uh, we'll start with Carrie and then move to Steve on this. We have a space force, um, but that space force res resides within the, Debar the Department of the Air Force. Mm -hmm. So the Department of the Air Force holds the Air Force, the military branch, and the Space Force, another military branch. Uh, Carrie, is that the right construct, or should the Space Force uh, be in its own department, the Department of Space? I want to see how Steve answers that first. Oh, way to punt it over to Steve. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, if, you know, oh, and, and I, feel free to say, it, you know, well, anything you want, but it's a, it's a meaningful distinction because if you're a Space Force and Department of Air Force, you guess you could be concerned that your priorities won't be the priorities of the department because they also have to take care of another service. But Steve, give me, give me your answer. Oh, I, I 100% believed and do believe in the approach that we took, which is within the Department of the Air Force setting up a United States Space Force as certainly the first step. Does it mean that we should never have a Department of the Space Force in the future? No, in fact, I think that we probably will one day have a Department of the Space Force. However, this was absolutely the right step. We created a structure that allowed um, the department and ultimately the taxpayer to minimize the bureaucracy that was created because it could leverage a lot of the existing structure, but also give that priority and focus on space and having a force, a new member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, four-star general leading it, its own budget. Uh, it's extremely significant. You know, Carrie, oh, go ahead. I was just saying, I think about what a service does. It's organize, train, and equip. And so by having a space force, you're focused now on the people and the pipeline, developing those people to be space guardians. You're focused on equip, the acquisition, getting that space capability into the right hands of the users. And you've got this prioritization and resource focus that you didn't have as much before when you were competing against all other, all other uh, systems and capabilities. But then also remember, this created, you don't just have Space Force, you have US Space Command, which is also bringing greater focus to operations, exercises, those type of activities to really bring space into this, um, you know, to really get them thinking in terms of a war fighting domain. Okay, and that's where I wanna go with you. There's a perfect setup, Carrie. Before we get into the responsibilities and the makeup of this, of this branch and the Space Force, let's set this up a bit. Um, with all the commercial activity around space, you have SpaceX, you know, uh, putting up satellites all the time and having these amazing videos go around social media where, you know, the launch, what is it, boots are coming back down and magically landing and being reused, which of course totally disrupted that, you know, that, that part of the industry because it brought costs down significantly by reusing it. Um, to Jeff Bezos now, you know, going to go and fly onto space and 
auction off one of the seats next to him for $28 million. Um, to these small little satellites, I mean, all the technological developments that have made space uh, almost take off in the commercial sphere, and, and both of you are now working in that in one form or another. Um, there's one report from Morgan Stanley that says the space econ economy will grow to $1 trillion, $1 trillion by 2040, so less than 20 years. Is it fair to say, Carrie, that part of the Space Force is supposed to protect the space economy in the same way the Navy sells itself today with its ships, right? And, it, and its capability, making sure that those you know, critical nodes of commerce across the seas and oceans around the world are protected by the US Navy. Is that what the Space Force is gonna do? Protect this you know, space commerce? So I think there's a larger strategic issue at play here. If we are going to maintain U.S. leadership in technology, if we are going to maintain our competitive advantage, space and commercial space have to be part of that picture. And so when I look at the role of the Space Force, but then also the U.S. government writ large, is there's a role for them to play in helping to advance the U.S. commercial, helping to advance U.S. commercial space technology, that innovation base, because we have an, uh, a lot of foreign competitors, particularly the Chinese, on our heels. And I would much rather us as a U.S. commercial space company be the partner of choice to allies and partners around the world than for them to go to China. All right, let me just make sure I understand what you're saying. We have these multinational, huge, you know, growing commercial space companies and they could be doing any number of things you know from you know the 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 hardware that gets you into space to the hardware that resides in space to the software and pieces that let you do the things you want to do from space are you saying that unless we have a space force that people feel is strong capable and committed to the values that this country you know was established to support and protect they could be going to china or elsewhere to ensure that their assets and their capabilities are protected I think Space Force is part of that, but I think it's that's a broader U.S. government advocacy and support position, strategic position to take is absolutely is, and Space Force is key to that as being the, the, the center of space expertise within the Department of Defense is, you know, we want them to be working with our commercial sector and seeing us as an arrow in their quiver as, as um, they seek to um, advance, um, you know, U.S. Uh, technology and advance our um, our strategic partnerships. Got it. Uh, Steve, when I think of uh, the U.S. Navy, I think of, um, you know, an aircraft carrier, submarine, right, uh, surface ships. When I think of the Air Force, I'll, I'll think of bombers and, and, and fighter aircraft. When I think of the Army, right, I think of tanks, you know, and, and obviously infantry. Uh, what are the assets of a space force? What, what, what should I be thinking of? Yeah, um, great question. Um, two things to think about. One is that traditional support to terrestrial forces. So supporting the soldier, sailors, airmen, marines, the economy, that's what you were talking about earlier. And that's that, you know, communications, GPS, missile warning. So now what's changing in the future, as you're saying, is 
that space is a region of conflict and competition where we have to totally approach this domain, not just as this pristine environment, um, as Carrie was saying, we previously looked at it, but be ready for um, deterrence, conflict and threats. And those threats range from lasers on the ground, um, anti-satellite missiles, co-orbital threat, cyber. So we then need to look at our architectures differently, resilient capabilities, space domain awareness, intelligence, and ability to protect ourselves in the domain. So let's go to that last one, because the first two, okay, so you gotta have resilience. I mean, if one is taken out, you got others, you know, you gotta be able to um, kind of see where this stuff is coming from so you can deal with it, right? In the same way that, uh, you can, you need like uh, some missile defense to hold off from being attacked before the, you know, missile or aircraft come in and take out the target. You need some of that in space. Uh, but what, is there any offensive capability? Is there, is there, is there a space vehicle? You have the X-37B is, you know, we got like one of those, that's like a spacecraft. Play some science fiction with us. What, what, what will we see in 2040, 2050 in terms of our space assets of the Space Air Force? Well, um, I'm not going to go down the science fiction route, but I'm going to say that that's exactly why a Space Force was needed. Because you need the people that are developing the equipment, that have the doctrine of what warfare will look like in this domain, and trained and ready forces to do it. Now, what that's going to look like, it is different than the other domains. Because remember that there's not people on board. So we can think about it differently. We can have more resilient and distributed architectures. Um, whereas you couldn't take that hit in the Navy because there's lives on board or you're not going to, are we thinking about our architectures in a different way? Whereas General Hyten will say, we can't have these big fat juicy targets where it's these- The Vice Chairman Joint Chiefs is, is basically, okay, the, the next step is, is to have a lot of small satellites distributed in places that people can and can't see but not to have what you just said, the juicy targets. That's right. And I think it comes down to a variety of approaches. I mean, th there is not going to be a silver bullet on how to win in this domain because the threats are so distributed and varied. So it is uh, complex. It's going to take hybrid architectures. You were talking about the commercial industry, which is absolutely charging ahead with tons of exciting innovation and capabilities that can then be brought forward to the department. Carrie, um, we're talking about the private sector. Steve was just saying that there, there's a lot of innovation there. Um, is it the case right now that the commercial sector is, is has know-how and capability that the Space Force needs, just like we know the, the Army, the Air Force, and the Navy, and the Marine Corps needs uh, know-how from the commercial space, uh, commercial, I shouldn't use space, commercial sector, right, to integrate into their platforms. Uh, is Space Force reliant and sufficiently using the commercial uh, side of things? So first, absolutely, the commercial sector has incredible capabilities um, that's really been driven by the advancement of technology. So these smaller satellites, the lower cost of launch, um, it's put space in reach of so many more entities, you know, us in the commercial sector now, but also 
foreign governments, academia. So there, that's the competitive space that, that we were talking about earlier. Um, but there's tremendous capability there. And I'd also say there's speed. What I have found just phenomenal uh, at the company that I'm at right now is we are doing something uh, in the domain where we are collecting radio frequency emissions, signals from around the globe. Um, and we're doing it from small satellites that had never been done in the commercial sector before. It was only done by governments with really large pocketbooks. So you're seeing these commercial entrants go into arenas that we had never done commercially before. And we're seeing that in um, hyperspectral and on-orbit servicing. There's just awesome capability there, but they're also able to go really fast. So Steve and I for, come from communities where we launch satellites in years. We talk about years as being the measure of time. Now I'm at a place where we talk months. You mentioned uh, others out down. there. Break that down. Months. So what do you what what happens in months? You basically say, okay, I uh, I got a satellite. I want to launch to space. In the past, it would take years to kind of hitch the ride up to yeah. space, and now you get it into space in months. Is that what you mean? Well, these are such big satellites that we're developing. It takes a lot of time to develop it, and so you're launching them every couple of years. Now we're talking, it takes a couple months to build a satellite. In some cases, days. Some companies are producing satellites that are coming off the production line in days, which means you can then launch in days or months. It's so much quicker. Um, you can also put a lot more technology onto these is rather than wait three or five years for me to figure out, you know, what are the requirements and let me let me go through a whole technology process. Let me figure out when I get it onto a satellite that will launch five to 10 years from now. You have companies nowadays saying, gosh, I've got a satellite going up in three to six months. I'm going to put a new payload on. I'm going to experiment with it and they can go fast like that. So it's just opening up really cool opportunities. So this commercial uh, sector is really uh, taking this and running with it as, as they do, you know, uh, disrupting, finding new markets, new application. What's the next hard problem that needs to be solved? What's the next big thing? And this wasn't scripted. So take time to think about this, but you got me uh, focusing on this now. Right, the commercial sector is obviously gonna look to conquer and iterate off of things that have somewhat been solved already, right? And the commercial side probably doesn't go ahead and spend a lot of money on things that haven't been solved because too much risk and not sure they could you know, optimize it and, and make it profitable. In the domain of space, what's the next problem that we need to solve, Steve? So um, when I think about space, it's also in the, the context of, of what's happening here life on earth. So fundamentally think about the next big problem. It's data. It is the massive amounts of data that's coming from space, breaking down the stovepipes, enabling the connectivity, bringing the artificial intelligence and machine learning to make sense of it in environments for the warfighter. So anywhere they are on the globe, at any security level they may be operating in, they can get the data, they can get the information and insights that they need and do it quickly. It's gonna be that speed of decision-making and having the right information where it needs to go is I think the future. The department calls it JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control. Another kind of uh, maybe more colloquial way to say it is the military's internet of things. They are pursuing that at rigor. We have a while, we have some work to go to get there. So, so if I understand you, I'm a trooper, warfighter, you know, pick your spot in the world, but I don't have a lot of infrastructure behind me, right? I want to go ahead and, and get kind of information that's, you know, reliable, accurate into my handheld device. And that's going to rely on something 
taking all this data and giving the best possible information to help the trooper in that moment, that space. And if we pull on just the previous things that we talked about, yep. so how do we take Carrie's Hawkeye information coming from commercial satellites? How do you process that, analyze it, get it through a Starlink constellation out to that troop in the field, have it understood not only at the troop in the field, but at the um, main headquarters through what we would bring at Microsoft is cloud computing and secure processing to knit all this together and the data layer. I think that's the future. And it's not only the military systems, it's commercial and allied as well. And it's bringing, into, bringing that into a, an environment where the right information can get to the right person at the right time. Got it. Steve, how many other great. countries in the world have a space force, Steve? Wait, I'm sorry, what's that? How many other countries in the world have a space force? Um, I'm, China and Russia reorganized as well with a focus on space. The French, the Australians have reorganized with space commands. So more and more countries are reorganizing with a focus on space. They're doing it slightly differently each country, um, but more and more there is absolutely this global recognition that space is of course about science and exploration, but it's about national security, it's about um, the global economy, and it's about this com burgeoning commercial sector. So more and more countries are getting involved. Carrie, are we the best space force in the world? Does the US have the best space force in the world? Oh, absolutely. What I was, absolutely, but what I was gonna build on what Steve was saying, yeah. and you mentioned it earlier, some pegged the global space economy by 2030 at over a trillion dollars, by 2040 at over three trillion. So there is a race on to get a share of that in terms of just the economic benefits in addition to the civil, the, the, re the scientific, the national security benefits. So Steve and I actually this spring taught a, a space policy and technology course at Georgetown University. Uh, as we were doing our research, it was mind boggling, 104 nations have satellite or space programs, 104 nations. That just tells you how prolific yeah. space has become. And, and the barrier to entry, how, how much lower it is than, than decades ago. Um, Carrie, let's stick on this. Thing. We're gonna talk about China um, because you know, that's, you've been a, a China watch for some time. You told the story of your eye-opening moment on the Armed Services Committee staff when China launched its ASAT anti-satellite missile. Uh, Steve mentioned the Rumsfeld Commission from 2001 uh, which warned about kind of U.S. reliance on space and related vulnerability. And they said we could have a quote-unquote a space pearl harbor, which would essentially, if I understand that, means that all our everything that we need, right, um, in space would be taken out in the same way that our fleet was taken out on uh, Pearl Harbor. Um, are we in a better place now? Uh, if Rumsfeld was asked, kind of, if you looked at the world today, in 2021, but 20 years later from his commission in, 20, in 2001, um, would he feel better about where we are? You're thinking here, look at this. She doesn't know. She's organizing all that information. What do you think, Carrie? I think we're on the right trajectory, but there's still a lot of work to be had. I mean, the first part is, I think, in, in with, with, with Space Force, with Space Command, um, you know, you're seeing this incredible consensus and bipartisan support build around, and we have to put greater focus on, obviously, the threat and then what we're doing to address it. You're seeing greater cooperation between the intelligence community and the 
Department of Defense to work together on these kind of issues. You're seeing greater resources flow into space programs and budgets. You're seeing greater cooperation with our allies and partners. So I think all of those right pieces are in place. But man, the Chinese, they're move, the Russians, they're all moving fast in this space. I mean, what's most startling to me over the last couple of years, and I'll say I first got my start looking at threats in 2002, 2003, when we were right. worried about like tactical jamming in Iraq of GPS and SATCOM. We then had that eight, that anti-satellite test that the Chinese did in 2007. Where we're at now is an explosion in terms of, uh, of our adversaries fielding capabilities operational capabilities with you know manned manned you know with forces uh, in the field routinely exercising and training on them and oh by the way they have just amped up their R&D programs much more significantly so there's a lot that we need to be able to stay on top of to create greater assurance in our architectures mission assurance in our architectures but also to counter those threats as well so let me translate this for the listening and viewing population. Uh, a former undersecretary of defense for intelligence just said the Chinese, Russians, and others have significantly upped their game. They're investing research and development dollars as, as a, probably as a percentage basis is outpacing the United States. And uh, they are uh, competitors, uh, near peer, if not peer, uh, in, in this area. Uh, Carrie, this past in 2021, just a few months ago, the Reagan National Defense Survey was published. It found that only 36% of Americans believe our military, that is US military, is the best in the world in space technology. So we were talking about this before. Um, American people here are aware that we may be one of the best, but a majority don't believe that we are the best. Um, what would you say to the roughly 64% of Americans who do not think we are the best, you clearly do. Carrie? I, 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 I still, I will still bet on America any day of the week. I think our technology, I think our innovation, um, our ability to, to, to go fast. Now, we need, we need, the government needs to do more in this space to work with the private sector on this, but I'll tell you the innovation, whether you go out to the Silicon Valley, Austin, Boston, you go to the universities, you see some of the really bright folks that Steve and I had the chance to work with in the Department of Defense and the intelligence community. There is phenomenal capability there uh, and then coming up through the STEM programs, but it takes work. I mean, we have to continue to nurture that, build them and then give them challenging problems to go tackle. One more for you, Carrie, and then Steve, I wanna follow up with you and just in terms of a little bit more in the private sector. Um, the budget, you mentioned the budget before. Uh, the Biden administration released its FY22 budget. Um, I'm curious, do you think it's sufficient um, what they're putting forward? And I think roughly right now, it's about 2% of the overall budget. Um, yeah, it's about $15 billion or so. Where do we need it to be to know that the Space Force is getting its, you know, kind of healthy amount of funding and is growing, right? You could give the Space Force 14% of the budget today, but it probably won't be able to, you know, obligate and execute those dollars because it's just emerging. But where do we need to take it? So is it sufficient for now? And do you, do you feel, and give us a sense of where it needs to be in the future? Karen. I, it's not sufficient. Uh, it's a good start. I mean, it's one of the services that did experience real growth this year. 
but some of that was a reflection of just moving other service operational elements into Space Force as they bring it together. Um, there are some key big ticket satellite programs, missile warning, uh, GPS, you know, replenishing those capabilities. Um, so those are in train. But when we, as we talk about the threat just earlier, we look at the threat and how we need to continue to, um, to change our architectures to better um, you know, absorb and operate through those threats as we think about where commercial is and how much more we need to do to bring commercial capabilities in, you know, those are all things that, um, that will require resource and commitment um, by, by the government, Congress and the administration working together to put resources towards in the future. Uh, Steve, we'll move off from uh, resources uh, from, from Carrie's response. You sat in the Department of Defense as a you know person, a senior official, deputy assistant secretary, focusing on space policy. Clearly, a big priority of that space policy was doing what Carrie just referenced, which is integrating commercial technology more significantly, uh, faster. Um, what needs to happen on the private sector engagement with the military and the Department of Defense where you feel, hey, it's working? What are you looking for? What would be the indicator for you to feel like these two, you know, the space sector, commercial sector, and the Department of Defense uh, are, are doing this well? Uh, embracing and integrating commercial technologies. That's, that's really, I think. Um, um, Why is that so hard? So for the, for the, the, the non-inside the Bellway, inside the Congress, inside the Pentagon, why is it so hard in space to integrate commercial technologies? Well, isn't it, isn't it just, you know, we all go on Amazon and just click and get what we need. Why can't the department just click on what they need from, from all these commercial companies? What, what's, what's the hindrance? Yeah, true. I mean, Complicated question. I'm asking you to simplify, uh, you know, the issue. Uh, it is a complicated question. Um, change is hard uh, with approaching problems differently. These are new capabilities and new ways of doing things. And the bureaucratic inertia can sometimes lead to the way things have traditionally been done. So bureaucratic it's inertia translate. It's basically, it's a mindset that, well, I know the way to get what I need from the traditional players. So why go ahead and try to figure out how to work with somebody new? Carrie, go ahead. Looks like you want to weigh in. Well, so let's see, requirements to, to, to develop a requirement for a capability I need takes what, 18, 24 months, so two years. So the Once military I takes out two years to tell a, a customer, here's what I need on my next satellite. And then once those requirements are locked in, you now have to go to Congress and ask for the money. Congress, you're, you're building that budget request for a budget that won't be executed for another two years. So there's four years. And then, then you start to figure out, well, how long does it actually take for me to develop and build that satellite or that capability and then get it launched on orbit to provide for the warfighter on the ground? That, what, that's a five-year cycle. The company I met, we are launching new satellites every quarter. <laughs> every quarter, the time scale, there's just a fundamental mismatch in time. And I so would... The metric then, Carrie and Steve, I see you nodding is, if we could go ahead and align the timing between the way the department figure out what, what its needs, tells its customers, and then buys it and uses it to where the commercial sector is, you know, uh, the fat is the better we are at narrowing, right? Bring those two together. That's the metric to look at, see whether we're succeeding. Steve, is that fair? 
That's absolutely fair. And I would say that there are great people that are doing great work at the Space Force, at the Pentagon, in the services, without a doubt. And there are seeds of change and activities going on that are really good. What needs to happen is they need to continue to accelerate and grow. All right, listen, we've exhausted our time talking about space with two space gurus. Now we're gonna make see, see what kind of medal you have as a Reagan guru for a Reagan lightning round. All right, this is where we ask our guests to share with us their favorite Reagan speech. Quote, uh, if you got a book too, great. Um, let's start with you, Steve, your favorite Reagan speech. Okay, so um, favorite speech, um, being a space person, um, uh, it was certainly a very mournful moment, but it was the Challenger disaster. And uh, it's, it's only about four minutes long. Um, he's in the Oval Office and he was gonna be giving a State of the Union speech, but the Challenger disaster happened. And, and it is, it's an amazing speech. He's, he's speaking to the nation, he's speaking to the families, he's speaking to school children that saw the disaster um, and, and speaking to those at NASA. And how they yep. and we did and such a great job there on that one. It's what it's a great example of how a speech can be so impactful and and hit a moment less than five minutes. Uh, the great Peggy Noonan uh, was a was the speech writer for President Reagan and uh, uh, was prepared the draft for the president. Uh, that's a good one, uh, Carrie. Uh, what do you got on the speech front? You know, it's it's interestingly that's my go-to one as well. And I, I remember I was in I was in elementary school, January twenty eighth when that happened. I remember they 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 took us out of the classroom, sat us down so that we could watch the launch, and then we watched what happened afterwards. And I remember going home at night and watching President Reagan give that speech, and it stuck with me then, and it's it still sticks with me today. Carrie, do you have a favorite Reagan quote, perhaps from that speech, or a different one? You know, I, he, I'm, I'm looking here, I, I pulled this out and he, he said, um, you know, and this is back, um, you know, well over 20 years ago, we've grown used to the idea of space and perhaps we forget that we've only just begun. We're still pioneers. They, the member of the Challenger crew, they were pioneers. And, and he ends by saying the crew slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. I just thought that was beautiful yeah, and so poignant. That, that, that's that's the that's the line that many refer to, and it still gives me chills hearing it. Mm -hmm. uh, Steve, is that your favorite quote? Or you got something else you want to point to? Um, if I can give two, go uh, for it. Quotes, if that's okay, um, the the first one he said, and this is different. It wasn't part of the Challenger disaster speech, but um, but I'm sure you've heard it before. There's no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he does not mind who gets the credit. Sitting on my desk, that one. Yeah, that is, that is very, very true. And, and we talk about the Space Force uh, today. And what I can tell you is there are a lot of unsung heroes that created the Space Force that worked really, really hard in the Pentagon, on Capitol Hill, in the industry, in the White House, um, that really made that happen. Um, and the second one is, uh, is a bit more humorous, but of course he had great humor. And he said, you can tell a lot about a fellow's character by the way, by his way of eating jelly beans. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Steve Kotei, Carrie Bingen, uh, we'll leave it there. We look forward to having you back on the show in the future. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having us. This Thanks, Roger. Great to be here.